Okay, so it's now my turn to apologize. I guess I felt bad that Eugene effed up and I didn't. So then Aww. I felt like got to even things out. The first third of this episode <sighs> was recorded using our backup. And then I hit record on my actual, the good recorder. But, but what's funny is that we actually went through checks and we're like, hey, did you push record? I know. Did you push I record? Know. Okay, all right. The new system now is like we have to show each other the recorder and the red light. All right, let's get started. All right. Are you here, record? Oh, you know what? I didn't. Good question. Okay, record. All right. I'm going to clap. Ready? One, two, three. One, two, three. And then one, two, three. Okay, let me just plug in. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Tan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Another Saturday recording. I need to buy a sort of a scissor stand for my mic, kind of like the one you have. Anyways, yeah, Sharice has one of those quasi-professional. I say quasi because it looks professional, but they usually fall apart within six months. Like, I think all the equipment's gone up in price. I was helping a friend pick out a, a setup. And I was like, wait, this stuff wasn't this expensive, like, you know, 18 months ago. And by stuff, I mean stands... Yeah. Shock mounts, etc. Yeah, I mean, this is quasi-professional, but it's really not at all. Yeah. yeah. Subtitle of our podcast. So I shared with you this Reddit thread. Did you look at it? I don't know if you looked at it. Yes, I did. The one about women's football. Is it that one? No, it wasn't that one. It was the one on Reddit just recently within the last few hours. That was last 24 hours or so that talked about people's editing workflow on podcast oh you know why i didn't read it because you shared it to a group chat oh yeah yeah sharice doesn't look at group chats anymore yes yeah let's leave it at that okay so what do you want to tell me it was interesting because the subreddit really discussed this polarizing opinion on how much you should edit a podcast because some guy shared his workflow on audition and it was literally a ton of cuts and it probably looks closer to what making it up or any story that we do looks like, right? Okay. But a lot of people were, were getting anxiety over how much editing was done. Do you think for a podcast to be successful, and that's obviously up for interpretation, it needs to be professional. Who is able to put out a podcast with low production value that will ever surpass a certain level? It really depends how much you enjoy what you're doing. If you hate editing, then by all means, don't do it. Just record it. Like if it's just for fun, you just like to publish whatever you're talking about. And I don't think you need to edit that much if it's like killing you inside. But I don't get the feeling that this guy like doesn't enjoy what he's doing. Or maybe it's just the fact that the outcome itself is that much more interesting or valuable. 
I think what you get from editing the voices is extremely high value for the time that it takes. What I mean is cutting out ums and ahs and ohs and cutting out repeated words. I think of it as a little bit of effort, like tightens up the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I was editing something before I got on this podcast with you. And I thought to myself, well, first and foremost, like when you record your own podcast and you edit it yourself, you become very aware of your nuances and how you communicate, right? We all, we all know that, like what your style is. I know for a fact that when I'm asking a question, I often throw in a ton of extra context as unnecessary that I often have to cut out. So like yeah. I might ask someone a question, it might be 20 seconds long, but I can actually just run with the first seven seconds. Yeah, um, your text usually takes more editing than mine. Yeah, your stuff is way cleaner. Your delivery is way cleaner. Thank you. He does say, though, that it takes him one hour to edit 20 minutes, and I'm more two minutes per minute. Yeah, two to one. So every, yeah, two to one. So every minute of recorded time takes me two minutes to edit. It's about fair. I think that's, that's probably about one and a half to two. It's like not, it's not possible to do a one for one, right? Because obviously you have to listen to it. So it'd be like extremely uh, tricky. That's where you're wrong. That's where you speed up the audio. Anyways. I'm, sh- I'm shaking my head over here on this side. But no All right. Let's jump into it. Your subject first. No, we should do an on-air paper, rock, scissors to see who goes first. Is that the new system? Okay. Yeah. So if you wait, 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 familiar, wait. So does winner go first? Winner gets a pick. Oh, so okay. The, winner gets a pick. Who goes first? So okay. the reason why we did this is Sharice said that the first topic often gets the most attention and we spend the most time on it. Yes. Okay. You ready? One, two, three. You win. Oh, I won. I won. I want you to go first. I threw scissors and she threw I rock. threw rock. All right. Okay. My subject this week is... What do photographers owe their subjects? Four photographers weigh in. This topic comes from a story seen over at artsy.net. The title, as mentioned, really looks into the relationship between subject and photographer and what that should amount to. The way they've set up this article is kind of laying out the overarching theme and idea. And then it brings in four specific stories from four artists that I think are represented by artsy or you can somehow uh, buy their stuff off artsy and follow them. So the story starts off with Philip Lorca de Corsia, whose 1990-1992 Hustler series featured him shooting sex workers and utilizing their cost of services as a part of the story itself. So, for example, if this sex worker's act cost $25, he would pay them $25 for the photograph, as well as that price in the piece. And they led with a really powerful photo of 38-year-old man who's 38 at the time of the photo. His name was Ike Cole, and he's posed in the parking lot of a supermarket. And that sort of like was a really powerful image of the sort of, uh, how do I put this? It was like the, the sort of everyday settings of a supermarket parking lot with him somewhat sexualized in it's, a way. Aesthetically, like, it's very Moonlight, if yeah. you've seen that movie. Yeah. The discussion that arises from this is what are the ethics behind paying your subjects? How does that in itself potentially muddy the waters, especially in a more journalistic aspect? I think this is different because it's meant to be more of an art piece, right? You know, in some ways, a fair for creative collaboration. And I think creative collaboration is a theme that comes up more than once. Uh, So that's photographer number one. 
Photographer number two, Jillian Lobb, started a series in 2002 called Southern Rights. In her photo piece, she documented a racially segregated prom taking place in Mount Vernon, Georgia. So this was over the course of seven years that she collected all these photos. And then she ran a series in New York Times Magazine in 2009. So the actual outcome of this was positive because after this, the town decided to actually ban these segregated proms. And then within that that whole story, one of Lobb's subjects, a student by the name of Harley, was also the organizer of the, I'm using air quotes here, white prom. And Mm -hmm. they received a lot of backlash because they were obviously the person that was organizing this. Naturally, Lobb's intention was never to cast the subject in a negative light because even Harley's family themselves, they're saying like, this is not about racism, it's about tradition. Well, also, Lobb went through a lot of effort in getting Harley and her family to trust her and engage in a relationship with her where they felt comfortable speaking to her. So it was not Lobb's intention to kind of stab them in the back. Yeah. At least that that wasn't her motivation. And from Lobb's perspective, she said that she can't really control how people react to her photos. She can control how they look, which there was a piece in the New York Times about a family of 32 half-brothers and sisters. And the reason why they're half-brothers and sisters is because they were all conceived through sperm donorship. And what I found really interesting about it was the photo style themselves painted every single person in a very sort of sad and, and somber light, right? And I think this is an example of maybe communicating that overall that their outcome being birthed through sperm donorship is overtly negative. I don't know if you've seen it, actually. I haven't seen it, but I know what you mean. Because, like, what you're saying basically is, yes, a photographer can only control how the image looks, but you're still using a narrative Yeah. in the portrayal of a person. So even if Bob didn't intend to make her look like a bad person, that could still become conveyed. Yeah. And I think one of the easiest ways to showcase this is that I just sent you the link actually, but if you look at the photo series, yeah, smiling, like no one's having a good time. Everyone's in these almost like rundown situations. I want to say awkwardly posed a little bit. Right. So this to me was something that I immediately noticed because photography was such an important part of this whole story, but everyone just looked very awkward, sad, almost like feeling bad for themselves. But that was yeah. more the, the emotion I got from it. I mean, no, I feel the same way. They're extremely somber. Yeah. I, mean, I haven't read the article, so I can't tell you, but like there's definitely some heavy editorialization. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll continue running through. So that was photography number two with Lob. Yeah. Three, Doug Dubois talked about the delicate relationship photographers have with subjects and how it can impact families based on how images appear. So in one of his cases, there was a photo that was going to be used for the back of a book, but the subject themselves was worried that the portrayal of them in that context might make her look low class. What they did was they they elected to to use graphic design and reshape the narrative and basically remove her head and her her semblance from the photo. To like cover, to obscure her face. Yeah. Actually, what I found interesting about the Doug Dubois case wasn't the example you said, but where another art director asked him if 
he would be willing to offer the rights to an image of his nephew for a book. But it turns out that the book is a novel, is about the sexual assault of a child. So then the photographer checked with the subject's parent and they were like, no, I'm not interested in that happening. So that's really interesting as well. Because even if it's not about the subject themselves, when it's connected to an essay that's in a certain light or a book, then, you know, that changes how you view the image. And the fourth one, Ted Parton, he said he tries to send prints to subjects in hopes that they see potential for some sort of transformative act happening between me, them, and the camera. And he compares it a lot to this weird performative collaboration. So this one was the one I think that was most interesting because I do think that when you give someone a meaningful, well-shot, professional photo of themselves, there's actually a lot of value in that. Because I've noticed for myself, I I like to bring a camera around like more often than not. And Mm -hmm. the photos you'll get from that are always going to be better than what you get from an iPhone. Because iPhone photos, it's not in everyone's thought process to like shoot a photo and edit it and touch it up before they send it, right? It's often like rapid fire sharing. I've noticed like even if you take a little bit more time, people really enjoy having like nice photos of themselves taken. People frequently post photos that you take. De facto, I'm the de facto party photographer now. But I think that does signal to something that... Ted Parton was saying is that you make you make a little bit more effort and probably the people in front of your camera also are making a little bit more effort in yeah. how they're posed or how they're expressing themselves as opposed to someone holding an iPhone. And but I, there's I, just I do, that tiny bit more going on. Okay, right around this time is when I hit record for real. One thing that I was going to say, too, is that when you do have a professional photographer shooting, and it goes back to the other thing, too, is that narratives subconsciously are being created in your mind, right? Yeah. Like I said, in that New York Times one, maybe it was deliberate, maybe it wasn't deliberate, but they weren't necessarily trying to share photos of happiness and delight. Like, No, no, the 32 half-siblings one. So that's like a conscious decision, because I might take, you know, 50 photos in a night or whatever and i only really want to share the ones that i think portray you in the best light or a moment i'm not going to just like fire off like on an iphone and just send you know the first one that that pops up Mm. but when i when i look at the overall topic for face value what do photographers owe their subjects the one thing that i believe to be the most important is transparency in its usage with the subject in advance not necessarily telling them in full color what it is but knowing what its intended usage is and knowing there's a degree there's a there's a, it's a gradient right like i think it's somewhere on this spectrum but i don't know exactly where it's going to land yeah you have right? to at least you definitely i think have to tell people where it's going to be used that's why yeah. i don't i have always felt somewhat uncomfortable with street photography which I know is like a totally different beast, but street photography where you are taking pictures of old people or kids on the street and they have like really clear identifying features. Like you can really tell who that person is or like what they look like. And then you editorializing that in some way has always made me feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because even though you, you don't know their name, like that's still out there as their image. And you just never know. You don't know that person's story at all. And 
you you might be using it in a way that's completely inaccurate yeah but then people link it to that person yeah so i think that beyond usage they're the intent and everything else i think that giving them that sort of peace of mind if, if there's any deviation from the sort of outcome be, there has to be some sort of communication like i think that there also are different elements to it like is this like an artistic photo series or is it more of a journalistic photo series mm-hmm. right and i think there's differences there where there's a little bit more liberty to be taken when it's more artistic mm. you know storytelling itself there has to be a responsibility there like you have to be mindful of someone's time of their effort commitment i guess they're underlying I don't really have a better word for it, but like potential baggage, right? Like these are might be like very challenging topics for them to discuss. You have to really be mindful of that. On that subject, like I'm still really curious about the relationship between Lobb, the photographer of Southern Rights, and Harley and her family, Harley being the organizer of the quote, quote, white prom. I mean, Lobb says that she treated Harley with as much respect as anyone else that she photographed, which I believe, right? I believe that they had that on a, personal level but the fact that Lobb knew like it was publishing in the New York Times magazine with like this kind of angle of segregating promise being a bad idea feels like you do kind of know the outcome Mm -hmm. of telling that story and like how that outcome might affect your subjects do you think that it's the responsibility of the photographer who in some ways is engaging in journalistic practices to to tell them why this story is important because that mean, in itself that brings into a question of just like journalism in general right because what lob did could equally happen for a podcast yeah. it doesn't have to be a photo in that case i could interview harley on this subject and use her voice and use her name and also get yeah. like the same result it's tough because they don't think they're doing anything wrong right yeah. but they might just have a blind spot and that blind spot is fully aware to the person that's trying to document them. It's but the it's, reason of interest. It's not, I don't know. When Harley's family is saying, it's not about racism, it's about tradition. Yeah. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. Right. But obviously to Lob and the New York Times Magazine, this is something that probably flies in the face of what 2009 should represent in terms of equality of rights, blah, blah, blah. Like all those things need to be sort of considered as part of it and i don't think that that family fully understood i don't know if it's the photographer's role but yeah, i mean it, I, I don't it know feels either like, it feels like it's part of it right because like if we're talking about advocating a deeper relationship between photographers and subjects then that must involve talking about why i'm photographing you and yeah what what my view on you is and that's kind of like ted parton says that too at the end where he's trying to reveal something in that person. So even though his are more artistic, like that goes for Lobb's photos as well. She's trying to reveal something in that person. So you would have to talk about like, well, this is the thing that I'm trying to reveal through creating this image of you. And it just cannot always, like Parton, something I kind of take issue with Parton says is that photographers owe their subjects a good picture. And he also says that everyone's definition of a good picture is different. And maybe he has that luxury in a like artistic portrait realm, but as a photojournalist, you don't really have that luxury. Yeah, but you also have to consider too that in the context of that, like theoretically, it, there's different layers to it too. Like 
You shouldn't be paying your subjects. You shouldn't be posing them. I think that those are things that need to be considered as well. If you can't get a good angle, then you can't get a good angle. You don't think they should be posing the subject? From a journalistic perspective, like okay. that sort of, yeah, yeah. Not not from like a photo essay perspective. I think that's different. Yeah. yeah. I don't really see it as a gradient. I just see it as like either it's journalism or it's not, right? But maybe um, there can be a place there. Um, the main two examples we've talked about seem really clearly defined. Southern rights as being journalism and Ted Parton as being an artistic portrait photographer. But what about the Hustler series, let's say? That, to me, is more of a creative project. I feel like it's a bit of a mix because he is commenting on a real situation in a place at a certain time. Actually, something you didn't mention that I was kind of interested in related to something we've been talking about in my program is looking at the language around a subject and what that reveals about the subject, which Artsy goes into. When we talk about photography, we talk about taking someone's picture, capturing them, shooting them. The language suggests that there's a power dynamic where the photographer is in control, where the photographer has more power than the subject. And I find that really interesting because once you bring in the idea of like having more power, it means that you should be taking more consideration, thinking about your responsibility and how you're using your power whether that's in a correct way or not. So what would that look like for it to be a more balanced and equalized relationship? I don't know. I really don't know, actually. That's kind of hard. Have you been photographed before, intentionally? Yeah. Like someone asked, hey, Eugene, can we take a bunch of photos of you for this purpose? Yeah. Okay, and how did you feel in that situation? It's tough because I think based on my personal disposition, it was like, I don't really like it. Right. But at the same time, I, I do feel more vulnerable because I'm putting a lot of trust in this person to cast me in a certain light. Yeah. And my light has to align with what they've told me because they could easily take this and turn around and maybe use it for something else. So how did you even out that power balance? I didn't. I don't think there's a way to really do it. If you think about it, that's maybe why media has also lost trust in the public's eye because they haven't been forthcoming from a from a storytelling perspective they haven't been that forthcoming in terms of communicating exactly what they are what what their intentions are how do you feel about getting people to sign off on your usage before it goes live i don't like that and to kind of clarify what sharice is asking it's like if you're about to do a story on somebody are you letting them have a look at it so they can have a final say? I don't really like it because there has to be a level of trust there. But now I think I kind of understand why on the flip side, because I'm, I'm generally on the other side, right? I'm not the one that is having my story told. I'm telling someone else's story. Mm -hmm. So maybe some people feel as though there needs to be a level of uh, clarity and authenticity mm -hmm. around their story. But then... On the flip side, it's like if you do let them have a little bit of reign over that story, then it's no longer authentic. But if you think about, because you asked me, like, how would you correct the power imbalance between photographer and subject? And one of the ways is to let the subject know what's being published before it goes published and having some measure of allowing them to give comment or give feedback, like the example that you gave. 
from Doug Dubois? I think the difference is that the intent is the sandbox, but what you're actually building inside the sandbox should be left up to interpretation. Because if you allow people to come in and just sort of run amok in terms of defining what the end product is, then it brings into question what's the value of you as a third party entity anyways. Why not just go and take your own photos? Why not just go and do everything else, right? That's my perspective. And I think that's why social media has become such a big sort of ace in the sleeve for people of popularity, right? Yeah. Because they no longer have to worry about their stories being misinterpreted. Yeah, they can just tell their own. Exactly. I don't love the feeling as a journalist. I don't love the feeling as a journalist that they don't trust me and my ability to tell their story in a way that I think does them justice and is also accurate. But I do fully empathize with why they want to have that position. It is scary to just allow someone to do what they want. Would you agree that there's a a transactional relationship here and maybe we shouldn't look at it as being anything but that? And the transaction being that the reporter or the journalist or the creator is looking for a story to tell and the other person is looking for someone to tell their story. I've always felt like they gave me more than I gave them. I don't know what that says about me. It probably says something about me. But in my relationships with the subjects of making stories, whether that's like publishing their voices or their photos, I've just felt like you gave me a lot more and you were way more vulnerable than I was. Mm-hmm. I think it goes hand in hand, right? Like I have more power in this situation because I am publishing a representation of you and framing that through words and images, but you're the one who's giving everything. I didn't have to give very much. I didn't give anything to you personally. I feel That's how I feel. I don't know. Do you feel differently? I assume that yeah. you do. I don't know. I think it's hard to define what, how much it is too much or too little especially in, the, in this context because it's it's all sort of driven by emotion if you're comfortable with it then you'll provide more and if you're not then you'll you'll kind of cut things off right it's probably not even worth really really trying to argue and come to a conclusion as to what that actually means because i think it comes down to a different dynamic it's more about personal relationships between the two parties versus what ends up being left out there because I might give you anything and everything and go above and beyond and you might feel like oh that guy was really gracious with their time but the other person might have not seen it in any other way but to give you that much access or that much information have I mentioned the book the journalist and the murderer to you no okay so The Journalist and the Murderer was originally recommended to me by Avery Truffleman, producer of 99PI. And it's a nonfiction book by Janet Malcolm about the ethics of journalism. It was published in 1990, and she writes about this journalist named Joe McGinnis, who spent a long time interviewing a murderer and becoming the murderer's friend, essentially, and then wound up writing like an expose saying that he thinks that the murderer did it, which is not what the murderer thought was like coming out of their conversations. So 
Janet Malcolm's book kind of investigates that relationship. I don't. I didn't really want to say more about it necessarily, other than I think it would provide light on this conversation, like for listeners if they wanted to know more. All right, let's move on then. Okay. Number two, I don't see the link, which is something like I try to engage myself in. It's like, oh, what is the theme of this podcast? Not sure there is one today. This topic comes from two articles, one that was published in Fast Company and one that was published in Wired in the same week. And the Fast Company one, the title it was published with was Smartphones Are Killing the Planet Faster Than Anyone Expected. And the Wired article is called How the iPhone Helped Save the Planet, both of which are like kind of hyperbolic titles. But if I was to like mash them together, this subject is about are phones killing the planet or saving the planet? Yes, Eugene, who's raising his hand right now on our video call. Yes, I raised my hand. My question to you is why did this jump out at you? Is it the actual topic itself or is there some sort of underlying narrative that you thought was interesting? Because it's a little bit more unique in the, in the sense that it's two articles. What is unique? Again, everything circles back to like what we talk about in university when it comes to like my interest right now is because we just had a lecture or we've had a series of lectures about the future or like the concept of the future. And what we've been talking about is can we predict the future and if so if we predict the future how far in the future are we looking at and how does that affect our decisions now and that's why i picked the subject because it is very much about looking into the earth's future and seeing how that affects our decisions if it does affect our decisions for me the reason why i even filtered through and arrived at these two is because i felt as though they were two conflicting opinions from two reputable magazines that just showed how confusing the world is today because there's Um, so much contradiction. Well, okay, for our listeners' sake, I will get into like the nuts and bolts of these two articles, but overview. I actually don't think they're contradicting. Hmm. I think Fast Company gives a smaller picture and Wired starts from that same place but then provides greater context. Mm Mm-hmm. So they would actually agree with each other on the facts of the situation. But the outcome, as in terms of like recommended action, is different. It's not contradictory stats, is what I'm saying. But I do agree that in terms of media, like if you were a reader and you happened to be browsing the internet and you read smartphones are killing the planet, and then you turned around and you're like, the iPhone helped save the planet, that'd be really confusing. Yeah. Let me go into some of the actual details for folks. So the Fast Company article, which was the one about smartphones killing the planet, says that 
A new study from researchers at McMaster University analyzed the carbon impact of the information and communication industry, ICT, from 2010 to 2020, so over the last 10 years. And that includes PCs, laptops, monitors, smartphones, servers, etc. And what it found was that the overall environmental impact of tech had gotten worse. In 2007, ICT was 1% of Earth's total carbon footprint, and since then it's tripled and is on chart to exceed 14% by 2040. This is still 3% at the moment of the total carbon footprint. So that's something that Wired gets into, right? Which is that like, despite the fact that ICT carbon footprint is getting worse relative to many other things, it's not that bad like it's not the main culprit so part of the reason smartphones are bad for the environment is because it takes a lot of energy to create a new device the outcome of this fast company article just like skip ahead is to say you should keep your smartphone as long as you can and don't like buy a new one every time a new one comes out because that really reduces your carbon footprint and that's where the carbon emissions mainly come from is the creation of a new device not the usage of your existing device so i also Mm -hmm. find it like kind of misleading as well the article because you might feel like oh my gosh like i need to use my smartphone less because my daily usage is like causing the earth to die and that's not true it's the creation of new phones that are causing the earth to die can i put it in the side yeah go for it yeah, like I think that's a big challenge is the actual production side of things because if you look at our desire in a lot of countries to move towards renewable resources such as windmills and whatnot, on on paper it, like it it looks great, but the actual production of that infrastructure is incredibly energy intensive. Mm-hmm. I, like you couldn't basically utilize renewable energy to fuel the energy required to build the infrastructure. Yes. Yes. They say that too. Like if you were to buy a new Tesla for yourself, that would actually be worse than just keeping your existing gas car. Mm -hmm. So there are things that the individual can do, but actually a large part of the issue, the greater bulk of the issue is kind of out of the individual's control. Because more so than smartphones, like the iPhone that we own, the problem with ICT is the servers and the fact that the servers are really energy intensive. So I, by not Googling something, does not significantly reduce the load. Like the the result is not, okay, everyone Google less because every search result generates like some amount, some tiny amount of energy. The solution, if I'm so bold to say, is governmental policies that force companies to change the way their servers are run. Mm-hmm. That would be what I would say and also what I think Fastco says. But this is the future prediction part that I was interested in because Fast Company says, what if, like at the end of this article, which is not really about just smartphones, but about ICT in general, they say, what if the internet of things really happens, which is where everything we own becomes internet enabled? your speakers, your blender, your desk, your sofa, etc. If that happens, then what happens to our carbon footprint? And I think the interesting question at that point is like, at this point in time, before that that is a reality, 
how are we working on the culture we want to create? Like, are we creating a society that is really interested in and dependent on the internet of things, or are we going in another direction? Mm-hmm. And can we go in another direction from that? I, the part that's hard to get past is that I don't think we can consume our way out of this, right? Oh, definitely not. There's no way that improving upon the way we consume is necessarily the solution. It mitigates, but it's not the solution. So I think I think ultimately, like if you if you want to break down what's going on right now, sorry, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to pick my words without just being this massive alarmist it's more along the lines of like maybe i'll take i'll bring it back to your future element right yeah and i know you're very concerned about the future so i feel like this is right in line with your concerns yeah like at some point i feel like the future itself is something that you can control in some ways like maybe not 100 percent, but since the future is often seen through the lens of what is culture, society, work, like all these foundational pillars, you can have an impact on how things maneuver, right? You don't know what it's going to look like exactly in 30, 40 years, etc. But you know, generally speaking, it's such a massive boat. You know how they always use the example that, oh, this, this company is a massive boat that takes so long to turn. Mm-hmm. I think the same can be said. So if you have enough critical mass to impact the future, because you're setting in place a general direction with enough momentum behind it, you may still veer slightly off course, but it becomes more challenging to do so, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's my argument. Like, I think that in general, you've seen how mega platforms are able to really impact some of the, the creative side of things. I don't know if you saw this floating around, but some guy highlighted a piece from uh, one of the more recent Stratechery newsletters saying how Netflix has essentially boiled down to a science. What is the maximum length of a series duration? So basically, a series only needs to exist for two seasons. And that's why they cut them off, because they don't see a significant uptick in whether or not people will subscribe. So it's better to have a constant influx of series coming in rather than keeping an extending series so that immediately has impacted how you create showrunners generally ask for more money after the second season too but so that's one example we've seen spotify force people to release shorter songs because that's how they get paid we've seen how facebook has pushed people to become video creators because that's where they'll incentivize people in terms of algorithmic changes and whatnot so you do see like how the future is somewhat at the hands of people with enough momentum yeah yeah actually i will get into that in the wired article because that mentions that so let's put a pin in where we are right now with fast company saying the ict footprint is getting worse we need to do something about it and jumping over to the wired article it starts exactly the same way It tells you, like, this is what the iPhone is doing that's bad for the Earth. You know, like, just factually, a smartphone takes a lot of natural resources and rare Earth elements. The fabrication of them take a ton of energy. But this is what I meant by Wired giving a bigger picture. 
total electricity use in the U.S. has been essentially flat for the last decade. And also other resources, the consumption of those resources has slowed down or actually gone backwards. So we're using less of those things. And so Wired is making this argument that the smartphone has encouraged this culture of dematerialization. Dematerialization meaning that previously before the smartphone, you would have a camera and a voice recorder and a calculator. But now because you have your smartphone, you don't need all of those other things. Everything exists within your smartphone. But also dematerialization overall as a culture of producing things that are considered in terms of how much materials they're using and how much energy they're using. So Wired is saying the iPhone has done that, has pushed forward this like culture of dematerialization. And the ending bit of the Wired article goes into what you're saying about companies that are big enough to move the needle in subjects. And Wired says, you know, ultimately it's the competition between companies that will lead to using fewer resources in order to satisfy consumer wants and needs. I'm not sure I agree with this argument, but I'm just telling you that like this is what this article says. Mm-hmm. Okay, Netflix, right, which was your example. Well, your example on a cultural level, but let's just stick with it. Netflix and Hulu, they're in competition with each other. As companies, they need to make sure they don't spend lots of money, right, in order to like run their business profitably. So in their effort to spend less money, they'll spend less money on natural resources and energy use while still trying to give the consumer what they want. And Wired says that this is how capitalism will help solve environmental challenges on Earth. Mm -hmm. Did that make sense? Like, have I explained that clearly enough? So I don't know if I agree with that mainly because I don't have that much optimism when it comes to what commercial companies decide to do and how they run their businesses. Because I feel like they would be happy to just like, you know, steam through natural resources if it got them lots of money. That's how I feel on that. But maybe I'm being too pessimistic. Like, maybe you are right and... Those big companies, Netflix, Facebook, Google, realize that they need to care about the resources they use and make big changes in order to keep consumers. What you mentioned also ties into another piece that I came across and that was shared in Slack that talked about how people now are looking more at brands and companies to help define the future than governmental policy. They don't really trust politicians. They trust a brand to potentially come in and effectuate change, which is interesting because like you mentioned maybe governments need to come in and and have a part to play in this. Yeah. But the reality is that we focus a lot on brands themselves. Like we, we, we almost feel as though brands should be the ones that are shifting culture and it should be Nike or Apple going green to force other people to go green versus the government imposing some sort of restriction. But the thing is, like, companies can do a lot of posturing without actually changing the way their businesses are run. And so they can do that posturing for whatever cause it is. In this case, we're talking about environmental concerns in a way that is convincing to the regular consumer, but actually doesn't 
make real change in terms of helping the Earth's environment. I would definitely say, like, I have very little belief in brands and companies making real change unless forced to. So maybe the thing is this, is that the current crop of brands and companies cannot do it. I think they've just been built up in a generation where it just won't happen. But I think maybe it's the new brands that are incoming that have a better opportunity. Because I think it's more so part of their DNA to do what is right. I agree. I think that's really interesting. And if I had to put a conclusion on this that was like very preachy, it would be even though I've just said that smartphones are not the biggest culprit when it comes to environmental challenges and also that we need new brands and governmental policies to like really make change, I would still say use your iPhone as long as possible. Yeah. That's what, I mean, I know that you, you've been kind of down about the environment and it's true that like as an individual, there's not so much that you can do that makes visible change. There really isn't, at least not me and you as individuals. Like if we were the president or the prime minister or something, then yeah. But I still think, you know, you you do what you can. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you just throw in the towel and you change nothing. Yeah. Even whatever small changes you make, those are the things that are within your control. I think that yes and no. I think the individual impact on the environment is highly overrated, but I do think you need to do what makes you yourself happy and able to live an existence that you're okay with. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's all for me. Same here. I apologize again for the audio quality of this episode. Well, this this part that you've just mentioned will be fine. place to cap things off for the day if you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at macon.com m-a-e-k-a-n.com you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms if you like this podcast you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on itunes or sharing this podcast with a friend also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Megan.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Megan.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Megan It Up. Okay, cool. Great. So, I'm, 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 I'm going to push. 
Yeah, we're really good at pushing stop. <laughs> like we never we never screw up on pushing stop. 